Welcome to Journey. Coming in hot this morning. Um, the one thing I want to mention, they implied this, but I don't think they maybe specifically said that they do, we do have a middle school and high school worship service next hour. Uh, refer to that, but uh, so they have Wednesday nights and then Sunday morning uh, at 11. So I um, encourage you to take advantage of that opportunity as well. And really proud of our students, proud of you guys for getting up and sharing about that. Well, it's good to have you with us today. Uh, we are uh, studying through the book of Acts, as, uh, as we have been for several weeks now, and pulling out some things that are meaningful, uh, be it besides just the narrative and the story. Uh, time to talk about what God may teach us uh, individually, specifically through our scriptures. And we're going to be doing the same this morning. You know, a few years ago, one of my favorite authors, uh, his name is James Emery White, he wrote a book entitled The Rise of the Nuns. And it kind of sounds like a rebellion of female Catholic uh, ministry workers. Uh, that's not what it's about at all. It actually is a look at how people currently view faith and spirituality. Uh, whenever people are asked about their religious preferences, uh, more and more people describe themselves as none or having nothing in particular. So that's the rise of the nuns. More and more people just define themselves in that way. Today, the nuns number about 28% of all adults in the United States. 15, 15 years ago, it was like 15%, uh, but that's a huge increase. And in fact, that group of people is the largest religious cohort in America. In the United States, 24 people would say that they're evangelical Protestants, 23% would say they were Catholics, and 28% would say none or none, nothing in particular. Now, of these people that are called nuns, we'll call them that, uh, many of them are obviously not, not atheists. They believe in God. They believe there is a higher power of some sort, consider themselves to be spiritual, uh, but they, if they say they believe in God, it's not the God of the Bible that we might believe in and preach about. They're not really anti-religion, but they are skeptical of religion, and they're socially disengaged. They are basically apathetic about God and society in general. Now, I share that with you because you may be today uh, here today, and you may classify yourself as none. And if you are, we're so glad you came today. Uh, this is a great day. If that's kind of how you define yourself, uh, that's great to know. Good to have you here. We're going to talk a little bit about that, and hopefully maybe try to persuade you to think a little more about uh, the area of faith. And I share that also to help explain the wide spectrum of views on religion and spirituality in our world today. And we see a lot of diversity today. But you know what? It's not just today. That same diversity has always existed down through time. It's not just anything new. There's always been a great diversity when people think about spiritual things, about religion, and about God. So as we study through the book of Acts, we're now in chapters 16 and 17 that describe the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul and of his companions Silas and Luke. Now, I want to mention here that Luke is the author of the book of Acts. So when you read through the book of Acts and it talks about we did this and we do that, specifically in this chapter, it's because Luke was there. He was a medical doctor, traveled with Paul on these journeys, and uh, so he was a firsthand witness of many of these things. So as you just read, kind of notice that, and I believe he was on this second missionary journey. And to recap this journey, they went back to several cities that they had gone to on their first journey. And they had established churches. They went back and encouraged the believers on this second journey. In a place called Lystra, Paul yet met a young man called Timothy. Maybe you recognize that name. He went on to become a traveling companion, also kind of his, uh, his mentoree or his protege. And also he wrote two books of the New Testament to him, First and Second Timothy. 
Several of the books, like Titus, Timothy, Philemon, were written to individuals, uh, also relevant to us, but this is a young believer that Paul was writing to. So he kind of picked up Timothy on this journey, and he traveled with him a lot uh, going forward. So they began this journey basically in what we would call, what they called Asia, or what we would call modern-day Turkey, in that area, a part of the world. And uh, they were traveling there, but in a vision, Paul saw a man from Macedonia, uh, which is in modern-day Greece, basically today. So they were called to Greece. He asked them to come and share Jesus with them there. So they decided to kind of abandon their plan they had, and they decided to expand their trip and go into Greece. And there they went into Greece and and visited several cities, including Philippi. We talked about it last week a little bit. Thessalonica, and Berea. Now, Berea was noteworthy because uh, this was a city that took their faith very seriously. In fact, it says this about them. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did the number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. So when they got to Berea, they would always go into the synagogue. They would begin their preaching and teaching there among the Jewish people. And when they went to the city of Berea, there was a very strong synagogue a group of, of people that loved God. And they began to tell them about Jesus. And more of them embraced that. And then also Gentiles, the Greek men and women, began to do so as well. And the great thing about them is they were a more noble character. They received the message, but they also went back and compared the message of Paul to the Old Testament Scriptures. And I want to take a moment and just say, I want to encourage you, when you come and hear me preach or anybody that stands up here, uh, you need to search search your Bible as well. When I give you some Scripture, you need to check that out. Because don't just take my word for it, I will never mislead you on purpose. But you need to know that what I'm saying is what the Bible has to say. So check it out, compare it, and if you have a question, let me know. I would love to have a conversation with you about that. So study your Bibles receive the message, and examine the Scripture yourself. Next, Paul went on uh, to Athens, and Athens was one of the largest cities of that day. Athens was a modern city, and it was called the cradle of democracy. And that's kind of interesting because we've been talking about a world uh, where the Roman government was in control, so it was kind of a dictatorship. But keep in mind that before the Romans had been the Greeks, uh, Alexander the Greek, great power, so he had, they, he had established in Greece this uh, the democracy. So Athens was a different city in that way. It was uh, more of what we might think of today. The people would help rule the, 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 the city and the country. So it was a cradle of democracy. It was also called the birthplace of philosophy. So Athens was a city that was very diverse in population. It was a city of artistic beauty, of magnificent architecture. If you think about all the Greek uh, architecture. That's the kind of place that it was, just huge uh, facilities, buildings. They had a stadium. They had a large theater. They had a, a large musical hall. They had many luxuries, uh, a lot of advancements. This was a very advanced, prosperous city. And the people in Athens thought of themselves as very sophisticated and very elite and very wise. They had a body of, of leaders. As I said, they were a democracy, so they had a body of leaders that had extensive authority over the government, over the leadership, over the civil and religious life of the city that was called the Areopagus. So the Areopagus was their uh, kind of their gut body of government. But perhaps the most notable thing about the city of Athens is that they had a fascination and obsession with the Greek gods, which makes sense, right? Because it was Greece. 
and because they had been under, you know, this whole uh, uh, platform of gods and goddesses and everything else. And uh, it was estimated that there were as many as 30,000 gods in the city of Athens at that time. And there were statues of gods everywhere, all along the streets, not only in temples, but, but everywhere. Someone said there were more gods in Athens than there were men in Athens. So just imagine that. They're just everywhere you look, you would probably see a statue of some sort to be worshipped. And there was a God for everything. And every, there was a God for harvest. There was a God for cooking. There was a God for everything that they worshipped. And to make sure they didn't miss anyone, they also had a statue that was noted that was a statue for the unknown God. So we don't want to offend anybody. Let's just, let's just put one out there that you can call it anything you want. Just identify it. Uh, this is a God. You just name your God. That's kind of how the people worked in that day. So Paul walks into this city. And immediately he gets attention. Let's pick up the, the scripture there. Uh, it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, this was his, his traveling companions, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols, these gods and goddesses. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians did, and the, excuse me, and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So that last phrase is kind of interesting. It's, they spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And remember, this was the birthplace of philosophy, right? So philosophy is a lot of thinking, a lot of conversation, debating things back and forth. You know, Athens was kind of the crossroad of the world in many ways at that day. And there were all kind of ideas that would flow through. As a seaport, people would come in from all over the world, international place, and, uh, and they wanted to know uh, what was being said. They wanted all the new thoughts and all the new theories, gossip, philosophy. They wanted to share their opinions about that. And so when Paul went into Athens, the first place he went, again, he went into the synagogue, and he began to preach about Jesus. And then he got outside in the marketplace and began to talk to people, and he quickly got the attention of the elites there in Athens, and they wanted to know more about what he was talking about. They wanted to debate, of course, but they wanted to know more about what he was talking about. So they took him to where they, as the government, the Areopagus, Areopagus, where they met, a place called Mars Hill, and they gave him the floor. So they just like, tell us what you have to say. Now, what's also interesting, this is where the Areopagus court had tried Socrates. Remember the story of Socrates, the philosopher, about 400 B.C.? Socrates had come into Athens, and he had uh, been advocating for foreign gods himself. He had been trying to undermine the youth of that city and undermine and disrespect the Athenian gods. And if you recall, they tried him there on Mars Hill, uh, if you know that story, and they actually put him to death by drinking poison hemlock. So this was a place where people were judged, and, you know, they were heard, but they were judged and condemned to death. Socrates was kind of arrogant in the whole thing, and he wouldn't back down at all and kind of challenged them, and so they sentenced him to death and killed him. So Paul's brought to this place uh, to talk about Jesus, and he's given the floor to speak. 
And Paul wisely kind of wades in slowly. He says, I see that you are very religious. In other words, you have all these gods that you have built statues to and you worship and you sacrifice to. And I, he said, I even noticed you have a God, an altar, the unknown God. And that's where he picks up the story. Let me tell you who this God is. Now, notice here that he was speaking to a lot of people, different philosophies, but a couple of them were the Epicureans and the Stoics who were, and by the way, still exist in our world today. And you'll see, they don't call themselves that, but you'll, you'll see this philosophy when I explain it there. These are materialistic people, and uh, they believe there's nothing but matter, and therefore there is no spirit. When you die, it's over. Epicureans are annihilationists, thinking that people come to cease to exist when you die. And the Stoics believe that the soul returns to the uh, unifying law of the, of the universe. And so uh, basically there is no afterlife, is what both of them believe. But it, so either, either way, uh, both of them agree that resurrection and final judgment of people do not exist. Now, there are a lot of people like that today. We don't call them Epicureans and Stoics, but there are many people who think that when you die, it's all over with. But we know that there is the body and there is the spirit. The body ceases to exist, but the spirit lives on indefinitely. So we got to understand that, and that's what Paul's going to try to address. He's talking about the resurrection here. Paul's very clever. Paul knows that there's a history in this place that they could have sentenced him to death there. And he knows that his mission is not over yet. So he kind of, uh, I'm not going to say he soft sells it, but he is wise in sharing what he's going to share, as we'll talk about here in a moment. So what Paul does, instead of condemning all their gods, which he could have done, and maybe, uh, you know, eventually did, he first of all merely compares this unknown God to the creator God he worships. Let me tell you who the God you're wondering about, who you don't know, let me tell you who that God is. And I think that's a word we need today. We need to know who God is. And we need to be able to share who God is in a simple way. So this is a very practical and really cool way that Paul talks about who God is. And I think our world needs to know about our God. There are two main things that Paul wants to communicate with them. The first one is who God really is. Who is God? And so in verse 24, it says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that this divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. So in these verses, I want to share five things that Paul tells us about God, five attributes of God. The first thing is God's existence. The fact that God is real. There is a God. And whenever Paul begins to talk about this, he, he says, you know what? God is real, and he may not say this, but basically what he's implying, unlike all the other gods that you were worshiping, all these other idols and statues, you see, their gods were creations of their own hands and their own imagination. Most of our gods that we, little g gods, are our own creation, what we want. And basically, these gods, these gods never lived as human beings. There was never a, a man named Zeus or Hermes, you know, those people never lived. They simply made them up. 
their own creation. The true God, however, lives, existed, and created everything and is Lord of heaven and earth. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God created everything. None of their gods claim to create anything. You know, our belief in God is primarily a faith, but we have so many other evidences in our creation that there has to be an intelligent creator. No one, it takes more faith to believe this could all happen by accident than it does to believe the creation of the story in the Bible. There's no way this, this earth came into existence by itself. None of their gods claim to have that kind of power. So his existence was first. Secondly, he talks about the power of God. Paul wanted them to know that God didn't need their help. God didn't need them. He doesn't need us. All of their gods needed them. All of their gods, they were servants to their God because their God were powerless. They might have had some strength, supposedly, but they all had crippling weaknesses. For example, Hermes had the tendency to steal. Your God stole things and had a reputation of that. Or perhaps uh, Aphrodite had many sexual affairs. Uh, Zeus had a wandering eye. They were cheaters and thieves. That was their weaknesses. They claimed to have strength, but they have weaknesses as well. You know, again, all these were things were made up by the ones who created them. They just kind of made this stuff up and created these narratives that didn't really exist about their gods. Their worshipers had to create them in order to explain who they were. And then they worshiped them and they sacrificed to them and built temples for them to live in. But Paul says the true God doesn't need this temple to, build, to live in. You don't have to build him a place. He doesn't live in, in, in this place. He lives in us. He does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. You know, God doesn't have any weaknesses. We can't point out and say, well, God, he, he can do a lot, but he can't do this. He, God can do everything. And he doesn't need help from humanity. Rather, Paul says, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. See, God doesn't take, God gives. God provides for us. He is God. He is powerful. The third thing he tells them is about the sovereignty of God. The fact that God is sovereign essentially means that God has the power and the wisdom and the strength and the authority to do anything he wants to do. Anything he chooses within his creation, he owns. His sovereignty is a natural consequence of his divine, um, uh, uh, a natural consequence of his uh, divine attributes, three of which. Omniscience, first of all, God is all-knowing. God knows everything. Secondly, his omnipotence. God is all-powerful. He can do anything. Thirdly, his omnipresence. That means he is everywhere. So God knows everything. He can do all things. He is present everywhere. That's the kind of God that we have. He is not controlled by his creation. Rather, he is in control, and he's very involved in the world. God made all the nations, Paul said, that they would inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. In other words, God is the one who established the nations. And then he divided people up, you know, the Tower of Babel into languages and lands. And God did all that thing. That's the kind of God that he is. And he has the sovereign power to determine those things. Fourthly, he talks about the intentions of God. God did this, he said, so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. God is not an elusive God that doesn't want to be found. He doesn't hide from us. 
He displays his majesty, his power, and his intention is that we would seek him and find him. Romans chapter 1 says, what may be known about God's plan is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. In other words, God made everything to display himself and show himself to us today. If you see a building, you know there was a builder. If you see a painting, you know that there was an artist. If you see a design, there had to have been a designer, you know. Everything around us points to creator. And the reason it's there is so that we would come to know and seek the creator. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who seeks finds, everyone who ask, receives, and to the one who knocks, the door will be open. The intention of God is that we would seek him and know him. And then fifthly, he talks about his provision. Not only is God the author and the creator of his life and this whole world, it's because of God that life continues to exist. In him, we live and move and have our being, Paul says. See, God didn't just create and then step away. He didn't just wind up creation clock and then walk away and let it wind itself down and it'll, it'll eventually die. God is deeply involved in our world. And God continues to provide for us. The Bible says that every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So every good thing that happens to us is from God. His provision is overall. And then, God, and then Paul adds, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In other words, we don't make the statues of God to worship him. He's not made out of stone or wood or anything else that we design. I think this was kind of a gentle jab at all these statues everywhere. Paul's going, you don't need those things. That's not who God is. They had, been, they had created their own gods. Their gods had not created them. God creates us. God is not formed in our image. Do you notice that all of these gods they made kind of look like people? You know, they made, you know, they look like somebody or they created this, this image to worship. God is not formed in our image. We're made in his image. So Paul tells them who God is. The second major thing that Paul tells them was that it was, <clears throat> what, it was what God requires of us. In verse 30 of this chapter, it says, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. You know, some of the people there had created such a narrative about their God that they were enslaved to their God. Some of these gods, again, they made it up. But some of them were so deluded that they felt like they had to literally offer their children uh, and, and kill them to their God, to appease their God. They would throw their kids and children into the fire. How horrible, you know, how what slaves they were to them. Or some of the gods asked nothing of their followers, which would be natural because they didn't really exist anyway, you know. So what power would they have to, to ask anything from their followers? But Paul says the one true God he does have a requirement of all of his followers, and that would be that they repent. He commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, the word repent means to turn from our past, from our, our, our past way of living, and it begins by acknowledging that we're sinners, else we don't know what we're turning from, right? 
We acknowledge that we are sinners, all of us are, and we turn away from that. Romans chapter 3 says, for all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that was Paul's message. But let me tell you, you don't have to be a pagan who worships idols to need to repent. Because that message is for all of us today. It continues on. We all need to repent and turn from our self-lived lives and start living for God. And we may think that we'll never have to answer for that. If you are what you might call a nun and you thought, well, you know, when I die, it's over. That's not true. The God of creation made us eternal. He made us spiritual and eternal, and we will live beyond our earthly death. And one day, we'll have to give an account for how, our, how we have lived. In fact, Paul says he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Do you pick up on the man he has appointed? Who is the man he has appointed? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And basically, that is what got the attention of the elites to start with. Because Paul came in and he was talking about Jesus and about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the hope for all mankind. And that's why the Epicureans and Stoics picked up on that because they didn't believe in resurrection. But Paul says, no, this God is real, and resurrection is real, and we already have that proved because of Jesus. See, Jesus is our Savior, but he's also going to be our judge as well. And every one of us will one day stand before him and be judged. And on that day, all of our goodness will not matter. It will not matter how good you are. That will not save us at all. We're only going to be saved by grace through faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. And let me also say that God's way is exclusive. The people of Athens would worship multiple gods. They weren't limited to one God. They had a God for everything. So they they had many gods, but God says there's only one God. And the true God tells us that there's only way to that Father, and that is through Jesus Christ, His Son. You know, so when I think about the story, I think, you know, America is more like Athens than we would like to admit, isn't it? We're a lot like that today. We're a pluralistic nation that recognizes every religion. We have the freedom of religion, right, in our country. And um, great effort has been made to uh, erase our faith in so many places, including our government. I read just this week about someone who was standing before Congress, and they were talking about God. And one of the representatives said, what you say about God has no impact at all on our Congress, basically. In other words, we don't want to hear any of that in our place of government. And so the effort is to try to erase all influence of God in our culture in so many ways. We live in a polytheistic nation that recognizes every deity. And not only do we recognize deity, we create our own. We make our own God. We scoff at those people who made those statues. We don't build statues, but we have our God. We have the God of recreation. We have the God of money, we have the God of power, a God of sex, even our own self. We're our own God. We worship what we want, we do what we want. Oftentimes, we ignore the power and the authority and the sovereignty of the true God. And we live in a mystical nation that's fascinated with spiritualism, a spiritualistic place. I was thinking this week how bizarre it is, all the different diverse ways that people think about spirituality. We have people who claim to be spiritual, but not religious. Oh, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. We hear that all the time. Many claim no religion would also claim how we're to be very spiritual, you know? We have people who are religious, but not spiritual, religious, but not Christian, spiritual, but not Christian. It's endless, isn't it? How people define themselves. 
Well, let me tell you like this. I don't want to be religious either because religion is empty and religion is just going through the motions. Religion is not going to save us. There are plenty of people who are going through the motions who don't know Jesus. Spirituality without Jesus is hopeless. When I think about our world today, it sounds to me a lot like Athens. And I think that Paul's message has never been more critical in our world today because we need to know the one true God who is all-powerful and all-sovereign and the one who longs for us. His intention is that we seek him and know him so much so he, he wanted us to know that he sent his only son into the world to be his ambassadors, to be the savior of the world, to seek and to save the lost. And that's every one of us. So if you are a believer in Christ, I hope this reinforces you and your knowledge that you are serving an all-powerful God and you find your way to God only through Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you say, well, I think I would call myself a nun, I want to I challenge you to look carefully at that, to understand that you did not make yourself. There is a master creator who made you and there is a God who calls us to account. One day we will be judged by the man he has sent, Jesus. But fortunately, we will not only be judged, we will be saved through Jesus. And that's the most important thing that we can walk out of here with today. I just want to challenge you to think about your opinions and how you're living your life, not just what you say, but actually how you live. And does your, does your life bear up to what you say? If you say you believe in God and you believe in Jesus, are you living that way and living for him in a relationship with him? That's my challenge to you. You want to talk more about this? Our time's up today, but I would love to talk to you one-on-one. I'd love to reason with you just like they did, you know, Paul and them. I'd love to talk this through and see where you are and maybe what we can, what we can find for your next step on your journey. I'm going to be up front. Tony will be here. We'll be available to talk and pray with you if you want to come up and just talk or you want to give me a shout sometime this week. would love to do this. The most important topic in the world, more important than any money, job, anything at all, is Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for this story, this account in the book of Acts about Paul who bravely stood up in a, against a lot of people, basically on his own, uh, to be able to defend you and to be able to talk about Jesus. Lord, I thank you for that kind of courage, and I pray you'll give us that courage in our lives today, wherever we might go, at work, at school, that, Lord, we would, we would talk about and share who is the true God and who is, who is our Savior. Lord, I pray if there are those here this morning who want uh, and need to make a, a step in their journey, that, God, you give them the courage to do that. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.